0: This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer.
1: And I'm Stephen Ray Morris,
0: hosts of the PurrCast. That's Purr with three
1: R's. It's a podcast all about cats.
0: We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love
1: them. Each episode we invite a fellow feline lover, comedian, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends.
0: Tune into the Percast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to the Percast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
1: Right, meow. We wanted to begin the episode with a note for our listeners. The episode you're about to hear was researched and produced prior to national coverage and awareness of the murder of Ahmad Arbery, who lived in Glynn County, Georgia. This episode contains discussion of crime scenes and autopsy. Listener discretion is advised. Due to the COVID-19 crisis, a number of our case inquiries were put on hold. We'll update in future with additional information on these items. This is The Fall Line. Glen County, Georgia. We've been here before. More specifically in Brunswick, where siblings Monica and Michael Bennett disappeared in 1989. They'd reportedly been in the process of helping Michael's father, Monica's stepfather, move from his apartment. We covered their story, and their sister's search for them in season two. This time, the case begins in a stretch of woods near Golden Isles Parkway off Canal Road, where the Spanish moss hangs off trees over flat, sandy ground and sparse grass. Glynn County is on Georgia's southeastern coast, 30 miles from the northern edge of Florida. It's a destination spot, in some ways more Florida than Georgia, more sunshine, more water, Like so many counties along the East Coast, Glen is set close to the winding track of I-95. It's a convenient detour. During the first half of 1990, it's likely that someone pulled off I-95 and headed into Glen County. They didn't drive far, just a little ways near the edge of Canal Road. In the patchy woods lining the asphalt, they left a body. In August of that same year, A young man on a walk would find those bones. As in some other cases that we've covered, ones that involve citizens who stumble upon a body, he didn't immediately alert police. Instead, he went and gathered a few of his friends who came back and verified what he already knew, that he'd found a human skeleton. A pair of grayish blue pants were tangled around the lower third of the victim's legs. They were made by Land's Inn and had a 27-inch waist. There was a button-up shirt, too, horizontally striped, a men's size medium, Sears brand. And, most importantly, there was a unique belt. Brown leather dotted with bright plastic rhinestones and a rainbow of colors. The clothes were American brands and the belt of unknown origin, but it was unusual. Someone somewhere should be able to recognize it. But in 1990, the likelihood of a random friend or a family member stumbling across a picture of that belt was unlikely. It wasn't circulated far. As far as we can tell, there was little local coverage of the discovery of human remains, and Brunswick isn't a big city. There may have been more on the nightly news, but it's inaccessible now. And how far could that story have traveled? To Florida, Atlanta, up I 95, Crowded with thousands of towns, cities, endless chances to go missing, without so much as a blip on the national newscape. And even then, there was so little information. Who exactly was missing? Though skeletonized, some of the decedent's fingernails were still intact, a possible path to identification, though investigators in 1990 likely wouldn't have known that. That technology was years away, and in August of 1990, the investigation was only beginning. The victim lay in the sparse woods for months. No way of telling if, like the Beaufort County doe, who we covered in season six, the victim had been transported from states away. And the killer could have come up from Florida, or down from Maryland, from any of a dozen states. Or he could have driven a mile or two out of Brunswick, Georgia, to leave a body off a convenient side road. There was no obvious attempt at concealment. Maybe whoever had committed the murder wasn't too worried about being caught. The body was reported to the Glenn County Police, the same department who handled, and still handle, the disappearance of Monica and Michael Bennett. The young man and his friends told the responding officers that they'd seen, quote, some fingers and a pair of pants. Their statements would begin an enormous case file, at least 600 pages long and maintained over decades, full of leads and tips and matches ruled in or out. On August 16, 1990, the responding officer was able to recover a small portion of the skeleton. The next morning, five detectives went out to give the area a more thorough search. The detective who wrote the report, Matt Deering, summarized their search quote, the site is 80 yards east of i-95 and approximately 40 feet from the edge of canal road we were able to recover approximately 80 percent of the remains End quote photographs were taken by one of the detectives the coroner was contacted and the glenn county police called the state crime lab detective matt deering had charge of the case and would be the chief investigator for nearly a decade on the force since 1984 He would eventually serve as Glen County Chief of Police from 2003 until his retirement in 2017. His name, along with a few others, appear in the file again and again. All the investigators listing casework, recording requests for features on America's Most Wanted, submitting dental images for interstate matches. That August, Detective Deering had been on the Glen County Forest for seven years, and he was likely familiar with death investigations and the local lab's limitations. As with many other police departments and sheriff's offices in Georgia, the Glenn County force used the GBI state labs to do sophisticated testing and pathology. So Detective Deering headed to Atlanta, transporting the decedent's remains. It was a four-and-a-half-hour drive. Though the victim was examined on the 17th of August, it would be October before the full autopsy report was written. But Detective Deering and the Glen County Police were made aware of the findings and were able to prepare a news release in hopes of identifying the decedent. The examination was conducted by Dr. Chris Sperry, who would eventually become the GBI's first chief medical examiner. Sperry prepared a report that included the following details. The victim had died by homicide, blunt force trauma to the head. The victim's body was almost fully skeletonized. Some skin, which had mummified, remained in a few areas. Pelvic attributes and skull characteristics were used to classify her as a female. Based on hair found with the body, the victim was identified as a Black woman. The report simply states that, quote, fragments of hair, quote, accompany the body, so it could have been collected from her clothing or even the scene. Sperry's report does not include any other explicitly stated markers of ancestry doctor Sperry estimated the victim was five foot two to five foot four, and that she had a slight build, likely weighing between one hundred and five and one hundred and fifteen pounds. The medical examiner estimated the victim as between twenty-five and thirty-five. A forensic anthropologist who also reviewed the case a few years later, Karen Burns, also offered the same range, but some news reports include a range of eighteen to twenty five, and Namus lists a possible range of twenty six to forty two. We don't know how the various ranges were established outside of police records, but we've seen 25 to 35 used most often. That younger estimation of 18 to 25, though, is present in some online Doe informational material, which might lead someone looking for matches to rule out a missing person out of hand. The Glen County Jane Doe's teeth are perhaps one of the most important identifying factors. She had little to no dental work done in her lifetime. No fillings, no crowns, but she did have a number of teeth pulled. At the time of her death, she had several extensive cavities and a tooth that had been reduced to a carious stump. That is, it showed advanced decay. The missing teeth had been, quote, pulled in the remote past, so people who knew her would likely be aware that she'd had those removals. We know by now that a victim's remains only give us parts of a story and that as science changes, our understanding of forensic findings, whether they be ancestry or biological sex or whether someone has given birth or had surgery, those change too. The bulk of the forensic work in the case of the person we now know as the Glen County Jane Doe, it was conducted in 1990. In later documents dated from the mid-2000s, we did find record of DNA testing, but it's unclear whether samples from the Glenn County Jane Doe were used in comparison. The records we have list a DNA sample being taken from a relative of a missing person and then submitted by the Glenn County Police Department to the FBI for inclusion in the National Missing Persons Database. Based on inclusion in the file, it's reasonable that the missing person was considered as a possible match for the Glenn Doe but that's the latest scientific evidence included. Back to 1990. With the initial results in, Matt Deering continued to pursue analysis of the case. As he sorted through missing persons reports, he also wrote to the University of North Texas to request a soil analysis be done. In October, he'd gone to the scene to collect a sample and submitted it in the hopes that UNT scientists could tell him how long the victim had been in the woods. The results indicated that the victim had died, quote, 50 to 61 days before her skeleton was discovered. The UNT analyst also wrote that there was, quote, unusually high levels of aluminum present. He also wrote that there were concentrations of melanin in the soil sample from the dirt that had been underneath the victim's remains for months. According to the analyst's letter, those findings indicated to him that the victim was probably of African ancestry. At this point in the file, Deering's notes on the case include a postscript that, quote, the victim had likely given birth. The handwritten note is included in his summary of the case in the description of the soil sample report. We couldn't figure out where this information had come from because it wasn't actually in that report or the initial pathology, but We eventually found a supplemental document noting that Deering had received the information from forensic anthropologist Karen Burns. Dr. Burns had been at the GBI working on an unrelated project and had apparently offered her opinions on several cases, including the Glenn County Jane Doe. Dr. Burns' message to Glenn County noted that the victim had likely given birth based on her pelvic pitting. We know from our Julie Doe coverage in Season 4 that current forensic anthropologists no longer consider pitting to be a reliable signal of childbirth or of biological sex, and Dr. Burns did note that it was not conclusive. We'd love to know more about both doctors' specific impressions, but the medical examiner is no longer with the GBI, and Dr. Burns passed away in 2012. Chief Matt Deering also passed away in 2018. And the lead detective who took charge of the case after him, Detective Doug McKinney, has also passed away. And they were the two who provided the bulk of material for the file and who diligently pursued each lead. We reached out to the Glen County Public Information Office in hopes of an interview, but amid the COVID-19 crisis, we haven't been able to arrange it. For now, we can say that this further testing seemed to solidify the victim profile for Glenn County who were looking specifically at the cases of missing black women ranging in age from roughly 18 to 35. It would be 1999 when GBI forensic artist Marla Lawson developed a bust of the victim. Photos of her work are the representations that we still have today. In 1990, before those artistic renderings could aid in identification, detectives were tasked with tracing the victim. They went backward from skeletonized remains to her last moments to the life she might have led before. Where, who, how, when? In 1990, identification would have to come through recognition of her clothing or comparison of dental charts. And it was a slow process. Detective Deering's 1990 NCIC query returned 99 teletype profiles missing women across America who might fit the Glen County Jane Doe's description. He spent eight months going through the cases, contacting local police and families to get more information on each victim. In many cases, the missing persons had returned home. In others, he was able to make exclusions based on dental records generated by the GBI. A few candidates were ruled out based on age. Some of these calls were actually handled by Detective McKinney, who would eventually take over the case. Daring McKinney and the rest of the Glen County Police have considered a number of missing persons, and an obvious starting point is the case of Monica Bennett. A large portion of the Glen County Jane Doe's file is devoted to Monica, and whether she might potentially be a match. If you've listened to our second season, you know that the Bennett siblings disappeared in June of 1989. Monica, not quite 16, and her brother Michael, 14, had been gone for a little over a year when the Glenn County Jane Doe was found. Their parents, who we call John and Jane, had already moved back to Alabama at that point, taking the younger siblings with them. Sheila, Monica and Michael's older sister, had remained with her husband in Brunswick. Though Monica and Michael were originally treated as runaways, they're now considered endangered missing persons. No suspects have ever publicly been named in their case. Reading through the Glen County Jane Doe's file reminded us of a few important points in Monica and Michael's case and provided others that we hadn't heard before. That the case had been briefly closed sometime between 1989 and 1991 when it was erroneously reported that they'd been found. That the police reopened the case when they discovered that information was incorrect. That a family member had reported receiving a phone call from Michael that the phone company couldn't find in its records. And perhaps most importantly, that dental records do not exist for the siblings. They probably went to the dentist as children, both a police interview with their mother and our conversation with Sheila touched on that, but they may not have gone after they had permanent teeth. So according to their parents, there was no dental record of Monica to compare to the Glen County Jane Doe. Law enforcement did describe the teeth of the Glen County Jane Doe to Monica's mother and stepfather, and they indicated that the pattern didn't match. Official records indicate that she was excluded on that basis. Monica's weight fell out of the range established by the GBI. She was approximately 5'2 and about 130 pounds. That said, most investigators wouldn't rule out on weight. Monica certainly didn't have any children, and was not, as far as her sister knew, pregnant at the time of her disappearance. As we mentioned, the unidentified victim had several teeth pulled and a number of advanced cavities. When we spoke to Sheila in the spring of 2020, she was confident that Monica hadn't had any teeth pulled. They saw each other often, and she was aware of the daily goings-on in Monica's life. She feels she would have known if Monica had any dental issues or procedures. And Sheila didn't recognize the clothing worn by the Glenn County Jane Doe either not the description of the shirt and pants, or the picture of that unique rhinestone belt. And if the victim is Monica, then where is Michael? Oddly enough, we found something in the Glen County Jane Doe's case file on that subject too. Specifically, we found a tip from the Doe Network, offering an unidentified Alabama man as a possible match for Michael. Now, The Bennetts did have family in Alabama, and it's only a few hours' drive from Brunswick, so there would have been a connection there. The unidentified man was recovered from the Alabama River in Montgomery in July of 1997 in what is described as, quote, an advanced state of decomposition. He was estimated to be six feet tall, which was several inches taller than Michael, but the composite drawing does bear some slight resemblance. Like Michael, the man had a scar on his left knee, but he also had two tattoos, possibly home done if we base our impression on the Doe Network's illustration. One was of a dagger on the left arm with the initials J and K on either side, and the other on his chest was a heart. Across it was a banner with the word Prince. Michael didn't have any tattoos, not that Sheila was aware of, and neither the initials or the Prince tattoo have any meaning to her. We reached out to Alabama authorities to ask if the victim had ever been compared to Michael, but as has understandably been the case with nearly every office this spring, we haven't heard back. For what it's worth, Sheila doesn't think this unidentified man could be her brother, and neither do we. Monica Bennett isn't the only person we've covered who might be compared to the Glenn County Jane Doe. Though there's no notation indicating that authorities considered them, the Millbrook twins have been suggested as a possible match to their sister Shantae and in public forums. The twins don't have any available dental records, but Shantae doesn't think that either of them had any teeth pulled. The clothes don't match what they were wearing when they disappeared, and that belt is unfamiliar to Shantae too. As far as we know, though, no official comparison has been made by law enforcement. Of the possible matches that were considered, the file details several that, at one point, seemed very promising. One case that stands out is of a missing Massachusetts woman named Christine Montero. She is of a number of women who disappeared along the northeastern stretch of I-95 in 1988. This series of disappearances and murders is called the New Bedford Highway Killings. At least 11 women went missing. Nine of the victims' bodies were eventually recovered. All went missing from New Bedford. The nine victims were found scattered throughout the surrounding area, including other towns along the state route of I-40. Their killer or killers have never been caught. A number of suspects have been considered for one or more of the murders, but as of 2020, there hasn't been a successful prosecution. Christine is one of the two victims who was never found. When she disappeared, there wasn't a fully fleshed out picture of this series of murders. Women had begun disappearing in March of 1988, and Christine's family last heard from her in May of that year. She's considered to be the fifth victim in the series. Though there has been press in later years, at the time of her disappearance, there wasn't much coverage, not that we could find. The victims all struggled with addiction, mostly to heroin, and most were involved in sex work. At the time of her disappearance, Christine was described as an African American female, twenty years old, with dark brown hair and eyes. She was between five foot two and five foot three and weighed around 110 pounds. Christine had a number of tattoos, mostly words and initials, all on her arms, and several small facial scars. She also had scarring on her forearms from drug use and was last seen wearing blue jeans, a T shirt, and sneakers. But that clothing description wouldn't necessarily be what she was wearing at the time of her disappearance because, though Christine's family last heard from her in May, some witnesses reported seeing her as late as July of 1988. There were a number of suspects considered in the New Bedford Highway murders. This includes a local attorney who had represented one of the women's in a court case, and he had his own history of arrests. He was actually charged with her murder, but the case was eventually dismissed due to lack of evidence. But, according to the Associated Press, he's still a person of interest, and the police actually dug up his yard in 2009. Another suspect, Daniel Tavares Jr., was convicted of stabbing his mother to death in 1991. While in prison in 2000, he reportedly led police to the body of a missing woman, Gail Botello. She lived in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is about 20 minutes from New Bedford. He was convicted of her death in 2015 in a case where he was accused of burying her remains on the grounds of his apartment complex. Reportedly, those remains were recovered by authorities. According to South Coast Today, he is currently appealing that conviction. Between the end of his term for killing his mother and the conviction for the death of Gail Botello, Tavares was also convicted of the 2007 murders of Washington newlyweds Beverly and Brian Mock. According to the Seattle Times, he'd been living in Washington at the time. Tavares's connection to the New Bedford Treeway killings was apparently based on his own boasting. KATU reported in 2007 that he'd somehow connected himself to the murders. There is a Wikipedia entry on Tavares that said he'd, quote, indirectly confess via letter, but we couldn't find confirmation of that. All of the suspects had easy access to I-95, Though, a trip down to Glen County, Georgia, would have fallen far out of the killer's apparent range. It's about a 16-hour drive. And unlike the New Bedford victims, it seems the Glynn County Jane Doe wasn't buried, or at least not well. Which would be oddly careless of a killer who was willing to cross so many state lines to obscure his crime. Still, Christine Montero was a good match based on the description of the Glynn County Jane Doe. So, investigators pursued this lead in 2000, when Detective Doug McKinney had charge of the case. He spoke to New Bedford Police, who had Christine's dental records on file. Based on the continuance of the file, we assume there was not a match. Though there are a number of other possible matches included in the case file, there's one name that we couldn't find, Benita Spears. Though she doesn't seem to have been officially considered, Users on a number of message boards and unidentified wiki have pointed out a resemblance to the Glen County Jane Doe. We did our own comparison, and there are definitely some similarities. Benita Spears disappeared from Gary, Indiana in 1988. According to the Times, Benita's ex-husband had been convicted of domestic violence and had begun a prison term in July of that year. He was sentenced to two years, but he was actually released on October 24th. Per the Times, Benita disappeared on October 25th. The articles covering her case list numerous violent acts on the part of her ex-husband, including kidnapping her at gunpoint. Benita was the mother of two young children and worked for a temp agency while attending school. According to her family, she would never leave her children. And the Times reported that her ex-husband was seen, quote, driving her car soon after her disappearance. That same car was found abandoned in November of 1989. The Times reported that her ex-husband refused a polygraph test. And Benita's new boyfriend, who was living with her that year, had just moved to North Carolina around the time of her disappearance. According to the Times, though, Benita's family was confident that she wasn't with him out of state. It's difficult to find much on Benita's case past 1990 or so, but it seems no charges were ever filed and that foul play was immediately considered in her case. Gary, Indiana is hours from Glen County, about 14 by car. The drive is nowhere near a straight shot either. Plenty of exits and highway changes. Most of the driving would happen on I-65, I-24, and I-75. It's not impossible Killers have made longer trips, but we didn't find any connections between Benita's ex-husband and the state of Georgia. In 1990, Glen County would have been off the beaten path for someone born and raised in Indiana, and who'd be using a physical map for directions. Still, if a comparison between Benita and the Glen County Jane Doe hasn't been made, it's worth doing. When we get more information on whether Benita has been ruled in or out, we'll update you. there's one more thread in the case file, this time connecting a suspect rather than a missing person. It seems that sometime in 2008, an inmate in a Virginia prison confessed to raping and murdering a number of women across the United States. He'd worked as a long-haul trucker from 1991 to 1995, after the Glen County Jane Doe had been found. A timeline was developed by authorities that included 26 states and hundreds of cities. The only Georgia location was Brunswick in Glynn County. The inmate in question, Ronald Ralph King Jr., was in prison on two charges of sexual assault of a minor, and in 2008, he'd apparently begun to confess to other crimes. The Albuquerque Journal reported that, quote, he told his prison psychologist he was responsible for killing a number of women. This led to a bulletin released by Virginia State Police, the same bulletin we found in the Glenn County Jane Doe's file. Based on this information, Cole case detectives reached out to King in 2009. They were working on the case of a missing Minnesota woman, Heather Icke, who disappeared in 2001. According to the Albuquerque Journal, King wrote back to police, quote, I killed her. Now do your job and prove it. During the investigation, they discovered that King had picked up Heather, who was hitchhiking, in New Mexico. He'd beaten her to death and, per Twin Cities Pioneer Press, hidden her body, quote, under an old mattress, tires, and other debris near a drainage dam just north of a truck stop. According to Minnesota CBS Local, she died from blunt force trauma to the head. King was convicted of Heather's death in 2011. Our research didn't turn up any more links between King and the unsolved murders in the 26 states that he visited. We don't know what King was doing before 1991 and whether his job then would have brought him to Brunswick near the time of the Glen County Jane Doe's death. Besides the city being on his itinerary in later years, there's just no connection between King and the unidentified woman found in 1990. Over the past 10 years, there are a few updates in her file. But for the most part, the case of the Glen County Jane Doe has remained static. So what can be done? The answer seems to lie in science. The dozens of DNA solves and cold case closures in the past year point to retesting as a viable option. It's been 30 years since the Glen County Jane Doe was examined, and many methods have emerged in that time in April of 2020, we got some exciting news from the GBI. They still retain the Glynn County Jane Doe's remains at the main examiner's office in Atlanta. And even better, they're currently in the process of performing isotopic testing. And there may be further testing happening, whether it's forensic anthropological reexamination or DNA extraction. We'll let you know when further information becomes available. We just want to note that this is incredible news for the case, and we appreciate the GBI fielding our questions in the middle of a pandemic when their office is already working overtime. To understand more about the testing that the Glen County Jane Doe is undergoing or may undergo and other possible reexaminations, we spoke to Dr. Amy Michael, forensic anthropologist and lecturer at the University of New Hampshire. You've heard from Dr. Michael before she contributed to our coverage of the Richland County Jane Doe. This time, we wanted her opinion as to what might be done in the case, especially considering the incredible advancements in forensic science. We also wanted to know how scientific advancements might change the victim profile and who would or wouldn't be considered a match. We asked Dr. Michael to explain some of the major advancements in her field and what's changed since 1990.
0: Forensic anthropology at large is a subdiscipline of biological anthropology. So as biological anthropologists, we're interested in a lot of things, but probably the um, like underpinning of all of this is human evolution and human variation. So the variation part is what's important to this story and to really the story of all does because that human variation is what we're going to look at to try to make um, a case that we can individualize this person and therefore get at their identity in life. So since the 1990s, forensic anthropology has changed significantly because we just simply know more and this should be the case for all science, right? Forensic anthropology um, in the 1990s wasn't wrong. It was just that we were using the tools that we had um, for the time. So the methods that we use based on uh, estimating age or sex or stature, height um, and ancestry, all of these methods together collectively are called um, the biological profile. So if we develop the biological profile from the human skeleton, we're saying we estimate that this unknown individual is this tall, was this old at the time of death um, and was uh, part of this ancestry. So. Because we know more now, um, not only through improved methods, but also just simply through larger sample sizes. Now, fa- flash forward, you know, past, um, 20 years or so, we have a lot more access to documented collections. So these are forensic, um, cases that maybe have been donated by family members, uh, will body programs through anatomy schools and, and medical schools. So all of this kind of coalesces to mean that we know so much more about estimating age and sex and ancestry um, and stature, and so we can apply all of those new, more refined methods to does now uh, and know so much more. So, for instance, this individual, um, you know, was subject to the methods of the early 1990s. Well, I, I would say this is this is a great example of an individual who we can get an even better biological profile foring out simply because we just have more to work with. Science should constantly be replicated and refined. And I think that forensic anthropology is a great example of that.
1: We also asked Dr. Michael about age estimates offered for the Glenn County Jane Doe, both the 25 to 35 range established by the pathologist and the wider ranges that we've seen in the media.
0: Reading through these reports, I can probably speculate on how the original investigators came up with these age estimates. All forensic anthropologists and biological anthropologists would be using a series of standard measurements. Um, there are no specifics in this report, but these are the same methods that we were all trained on. I was trained on these in graduate school when I was going to graduate school in you know 2006 when I started. Um, But the reality is that some of these studies were done in the 70s, the 50s, even the 1920s. So we're all trained on these methods. Um, These are the methods that were used uh, to to, um, estimate age for the doe, in this case, in the 1990s. They're the same ones that I've used, and they're actually the same ones that in 2020 I teach my students, right? We have something called secular change. So what this means is that um, individuals... uh, this part of this biological profile where uh, culture, environment, and biology is all kind of acting on the body, um, that influences age estimations. And so we have to continually refine these methods. Um, so in this original report here, we, with the two age ranges, as you've mentioned, um, there are probably a number of factors that may have contributed to this, um, not the least of which is um, Purely just subjective expert opinion, right? Um, sometimes anthropologists weigh a particular method more heavily, and others might not. You know, I might write in my report, "Yeah, I've used all of these standard methods, but you know, I give more uh, weight to a particular one." So, you know, we like to think that science is like is is fact and all of this, but there's a lot of subjectivity in um, forensic anthropology and in estimating age, sex, ancestry, anything from the human skeleton. Um, But we do know that humans are byproducts of biology, culture, and environment. And so all of these intersecting factors may actually cause a skeletal age estimate to not reflect the true number of years a person has been alive. So your skeletal age estimate is your biological age. But the way that your skeleton looks, right, to a forensic anthropologist may not actually be representative of the number of years you've been alive, which is your chronological age. So for instance, if you have um, a doe who is um, a chronic alcohol user, right? alcohol affects the skeleton in a demonstrable way. And the the techniques that we use to estimate age actually will under or overage that person depending on the method that you're using. So lifestyle factors or diseases like alcoholism or chronic drug abuse. This also affects the skeleton. So then we get this disconnect between um, true biological age and chronological age. Um, And so that might kind of mess up what we're doing when we try to estimate age from a skeleton. So for instance, um, if there's something about uh, the condition of the teeth, in this case, um, there was speculation that based on the condition of the doe's teeth, she may have been on the older end of the proposed age range. And I can see where they were going with that, because generally our assumption is that, you know, the longer you live, the more wear there is on your teeth or the more cavities you might accumulate. But in reality, this is just untrue or at least um, kind of an untenable explanation, because really people can have poor oral health at any time during life. I mean, who doesn't have lifestyle factors that might affect their skeleton? We're talking legal medications, illegal drugs, um, chronic alcohol use, um, uh, genetic issues, all kinds of stuff that that might affect these these age methods. And that's something that, um, you know, in an unknown uh, case or in a doe case, we just simply don't know if that person is experiencing any of that stuff.
1: We were interested in the height and weight estimates, 5'2 to 5'4 and about 115 pounds, and whether scientists are using the same estimation methods now as they did in 1990.
0: Height, or what we would say stature probably in a forensic report, is um, best estimated by measuring the maximum lengths of the long bones. So when I say long bones, I mean um, the femur, the bone of your thigh, the tibia or the fibula, the bones um, that make up your kind of like shin area or your lower leg, um, and the humerus radius and ulna, which make up your arm. So long bones are your limbs, essentially. Height can be best measured when we take the maximum measurements or the maximum lengths of each of those bones, though. Honestly, the femur is by far the best. I would be really uh, kind of <laughs> hesitant to believe um, a height estimation based on, let's say, like a, a humerus or an upper arm bone. Um, but certainly, people have tried it. We can take that maximum femur length, apply something called a regression formula to it, and that's going to produce an eight or a height range. So let's say a person is five foot four to five foot eight, or something like this. Um, those regression formulas are based on the uh, measurements taken off those individuals of known heights. Um, Height is a tricky thing though, because if you ask somebody how tall they are, um, I'm very short personally, and I round way up when somebody asks me how tall I am, right? That is a problem. We have something that we think of as like the actual heights, right? And the height that you give on your driver's license or that you say to your doctor or whatever. Um, So that leads to a problem where that an individual's recorded height, maybe on some piece of identification, like a license, might actually be taller than they were in life. Now, is it going to be... So much taller that it kicks you out of this potential age estimate or, or Sorry, um, height estimation that a forensic anthropologist would generate. Probably not, but it might introduce some error potentially. So height estimations are always given in ranges. You never would see, at least now, you would never see a height estimation where we said this Doe was five foot five at le- during life. It's just not that precise. So we would still give a couple inches or so of a of a height range so weight i will be honest um i've never personally seen weight reported in a forensic report and that's uh, due to a couple things one is that it's just this is a, a method that has fallen kind of out of favor it hasn't been able to be replicated um and it's just my opinion that weight is really infrequently estimated from skeletonized remains i i was never trained to do this and I started graduate school about 15 years ago. So if I wasn't trained back then, um, you know, my advisors were not using this, and of course they're a generation above me. Um, so I I wouldn't put much. I was I'm going to go for a bad pun. I'm not going to put much weight on the weight um, estimations in a in a forensic report. I think the height is a lot more um, reliable in this case. Yeah.
1: We asked Dr. Michael to discuss what other tests might be done that weren't available or weren't popular in 1990.
0: So I think that first, um, a nice taphonomic assessment and analysis of the remains should be performed. So what I mean by this is taphonomy, very broadly defined, is anything that happens to the body after death um, and before recovery, so that means that if this individual was lying out on the surface or some individuals are buried or whatever the case is, um, there are all of, these, all of these processes working on those remains, um, whether it's environmental processes um, or decomposition processes. So in this case, it would be great to examine the remains for with that specific intent. So we might see things like differential soil staining that could give us a clue Or maybe we would see things like rodent gnawing or um, root etching, which is when um, plants kind of etch onto the remains. Um, To give you an example, I had a case where there was a root, a pretty sizable root that had grown through some vertebra. uh, And so we were able to collaborate with a plant biologist and identify the plant itself, but then also say, well, how long would it take for a root like this to grow? And so we used that as kind of a rough estimate of how long the individual might have been out there as well. So a taphonomy uh, analysis would be great to see. Uh, Additionally, I think that overall, the entire biological profile can and should be refined. We can get a better estimation for sure of the age, sex, stature, and ancestry. And this enhanced bio profile would obviously serve the victim um, and the investigators by ensuring that we produce a more accurate representation of who this person was during life. And then finally, from the report, I can see that this victim did exhibit some skeletal trauma. And um, trauma, skeletal trauma is really, really difficult. It takes a, a, um, definitely an expert to understand uh, trauma and fracturing in bone. Um, so we know so much more now about how bone fractures propagate, how they begin rather, um, and we understand so much more about what perimortem trauma, which is trauma at or around the time of death, versus post-mortem fracturing um, looks like. So let's say that we have an individual left out in the woods, right? That individual maybe was hit with a blunt object by a perpetrator that's going to cause a specific fracture look and that fracture look is going to look way different than um the kind of longitudinal cracking and the things that we would see that are just part of the of the overall decomposition process where the bones dry out maybe the sun um, bleaches them out things like this so you need a, a well-trained anthropologist to be able to say that this individual has um, perimortem trauma that's likely linked to a perpetrator activity um, versus this individual has um, some fracturing and some broken bones or some fragmented bones that are just um, associated more with uh, that they were simply you know not recovered for some period of time.
1: Dr. Michael was particularly interested in the detail that some of the Glen County Jane Doe's fingernails were still intact. They could potentially provide important information about her life.
0: Fingernails are a potentially really powerful source of data, just like bones. Um, Fingernails can be used in isotope analyses of unknown individuals. And a really simple way of understanding what isotope analysis is, um, if you're unfamiliar, is that there are these specific isotopes that we ingest when we eat and drink from our local resources. So if you're a child and you're forming your adult teeth, as we all form our adult teeth in childhood, particular isotopes called strontium isotopes will show up in your teeth. And those strontium isotopes are regional signatures. The cool thing about fingernails and hair as well is that they offer that same information, but at a later period. So the fingernails and hair are gonna reflect maybe the last year or so of life. So we have kind of this um, Front end loaded and back end loaded picture of the decedent during their life. Teeth will give us the early picture. Fingernail and hair and fingernails and hair will give us the later picture. Um, if you can get strontium isotope data out of them. So combined all together, this can be really really powerful information for investigators and potentially link a Doe to a region um, where he or she might have gone missing. Um, if that looks significantly different um, than the region that they were recovered from.
1: If you have any information regarding the victim known as the Glenn County Jane Doe, please call the Glenn County Police Department at 912-554-3645. If you have information regarding the disappearance of Benita Spears, please call Gary Police at 219-881-7300. If you know anything about the disappearance of Christine Montero, call New Bedford Police at 508-991-6300. We'll be back soon with episodes covering cases from Florida to Tennessee. In the meantime, you can hear special early access releases on Stitcher Premium, where you can get your first month free with the promo code LINE. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced, scored, and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Our research assistants are Kim Fritz, Jessica Ann, Lex Weathers, and Brian Warders. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. You can find Fall Line merchandise in the exactly right Podswag store.